This program is brought to you by Stanford University. The 2009 Drell Lecture will be presented today by Dr. Ariel Levite, uh, known uh, to many of us simply as Ellie. Uh, before I introduce uh, Dr. Levite, I'm pleased to offer a special welcome to Dr. Sidney Drell and his wife Harriet, uh, who is here with him today. This lecture was established in honor of Dr. Drell by a generous gift from Dr. Albert Budwilan uh, and his wife, Cicely, uh, both alumni of Stanford University. They established a Drell Lecture in 1994 to address current and critical national and international security issues that have important scientific or technical dimensions. Dr. Drell is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of theoretical physics emeritus at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, SLAC, he served as SLAC's deputy director until retiring in 1998, although if that's what you call retiring. And he's a theoretical physicist and arms control specialist. He's been active as an advisor to the executive and legislative branches of government on national security and defense issues for more than four decades. He continues to tirelessly serve the nation and the world. His most recent endeavor is the spearhead, the proposal from the four great statesmen, uh, George Schultz, William Perry, Henry Kissinger, and Sam Nunn, towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. And Secretary Schultz, we're very pleased to have you here with us this afternoon. Dr. Drell is a role model for scientists around the world. Ten years ago, he stated, it is my personal conviction that the scientific community not each individual, but as a whole, bears a responsibility, a moral obligation to, pro uh, to project the implications of technological changes initiated by our scientific progress and to help citizens and their governments shape their practical applications in ways beneficial to all society. He has dedicated much of his life to that proposition, and we honor him today for that leadership and what he has done to make this a safer and better world for all. Sitrell is also the founding co-director of CSAC. Today, CSAC continues to be a research center devoted to producing policy-relevant research, influence public policy, and training the next generation of specialists in international security. Now I have the great pleasure of introducing Dr. Ariel Levita, Dr. Levita is a distinguished policy leader and nuclear practitioner who has tackled some of the world's toughest nuclear challenges. His lecture today, A Moment of Truth for Nuclear Energy, will focus on how to decouple the expansion of nuclear energy from nuclear weapons proliferation, how to operate nuclear power industry safely and securely, and how to find long-term solutions to handling nuclear waste. Dr. Levite, a longtime friend of CSAC in Stanford, is a member of the Israeli Interministerial Steering Committee on Arms Control and Regional Security, and he's currently a non-resident senior associate in the non-proliferation program of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Before that, he was principal deputy director for policy at the Israeli Atomic Energy Commission and director of the Bureau for International Security and Arms Control in the Israeli Ministry of Defense. From 2000 to 2002, Dr. Levite was a visiting fellow 
at CSAC and co-leader of the Center's Discriminate Force Project. He has taught at Tel Aviv University, where he earned his bachelor's degree, and also at Cornell, where he earned his master's and PhD degrees. And he's also taught at the University of California at Davis. Dr. Levita has written and edited many publications, including the current proliferation predicament, uh, which was published in Adams for Peace, a future after 50 years, and also an article entitled Never Say Never Again, Nuclear Reversal Revisited. And he published that in International Security, and we're proud to say that he wrote that uh, while he was a visiting scholar at CSAC. Dr. Levite will take the podium in just a moment, uh, but I would like you to hold your questions during his talk until the end, and then they will have a question and answer session. Uh, I'd also like to remind you to please uh, turn off your cell phones at this particular time. So at this point, I would like to turn the podium over to Dr. Levite, uh, and please uh, help me welcome him uh, to Stanford. Dr. Levite. Good afternoon. Uh, chances are that I'll do uh, more injustice than good if I try to describe Sid Drell to you in just a few words. And for several reasons. Uh, Sid has been such a, an acclaimed and, and sort of established member of the community here for so many decades that I assume most of you know him very well already. And so it would be redundant my part to tell you more about it. Sid has already described him to you somewhat. But I think uh, even more importantly, because Philip Taubman, in introducing Sid last year, did such a wonderful job, and not being such a, it's a wonderful writer uh, and portrait describer as, as uh, uh, Philip, I'm, I have no chance of doing as well. So I'll keep my comments on Sid relatively brief and make them very personal. I've known Sid almost as long as Philip Taubman, having first met him while I was a pre-doctoral fellow here at CSAC in 1982, uh, which I give uh, considerable sort of, uh, credit for having introduced me in a systematic fashion to arms control as the Center uh, for International Security and Cooperation was then a Center for International Security and Arms Control, arms control being very much in vogue and seen being very much the spirit behind that preoccupation. But uh, in addition to, um, to having sort of known him at that time, I think we have stayed in touch over the years. I was monitoring with awe how Sid uh, uh, has uh, been and remains such an active player on the, on the academic and policy scene for all of those years. He has been and remains to this day a role model, a source of inspiration, a world-class theoretical scientist, an applied science advisor, a mentor, a patriot, a concerned global citizen, and above all, a remarkable human being. I have been benefited a great deal from many of these attributes. Somehow, no matter whether he advises presidents or keeps the world safe from nuclear war, he still talks to each person at their level. So whether it's the most important person in the room or just a caterer, they love him because he treats them exactly the same with so much affection and respect. So I'm especially proud to be a friend of Sid. That none of Sid's qualities have changed by one iota after such a distinguished career, spending almost 60 years, 
that he's still as active as they come on all of those fronts to this day, as Sig Hecker had already described. That he continues to do so modestly, notwithstanding his acclaim, is a testimony to how unique of a person Sid is. So I feel that it's a true pr privilege and honor that has been bestowed on me today to give the presentation in his honor this year. I'm truly moved to be able to do so in the presence not just of Sid, but also Harriet, Persis, <clears throat> George Schultz, Chip Lecker, Sig, many others, members of the Slack community, uh, uh, other members of Sid Enormous Fan Club, all present. Let me show you just three slides that try to capture for you who I think Sid is before turning to discuss the topic that was actually assigned to me, the issue of nuclear energy. One, a remarkable physicist, and it's quite remarkable to see that it was not just recognized here in the United States, but in Russia as well. So this basically speaks for itself. The second is just to give you a list. I don't wish to expect you to memorize this entire list, only to tell you that in trying to package it into one slide, I had to take many of his accomplishments away. Uh, so they're all registered on the website if you actually want to see the others that I've omitted for lack of space, no other reason. And lastly, I want to say about something about, about Sid and his, the various areas that he has been aware, sort of working on and the kind of person that he is. I think you've already heard that Sid has had a lot to do with work that sort of over many, many years in trying to keep the nation safe and trying to keep the U.S. nuclear arsenal reliable, safe, but also one that doesn't get need to be used as sort of a lecturer on so many different settings, as the co-developer of the first reconnaissance satellite of the United States, and then many, many more to come, but their pictures are not equally accessible as this one, the corona. As someone who has not only developed uh, military, military gear or nuclear weapons, but has also been at the forefront of the dialogue across cultures and across nations to try and reach common understanding that would make their retention, their expansion, and needless to say, their use unnecessary, as this picture says of, sort of, of those, some of those early dialogues on the left at Eriche. As a, a colleague and a pair cherished friends, even during particularly hard times, with Andrei Sakharov and his wife, Elena Bonner. And for those of you who are less aware of this, also a gifted musician and someone who particularly loves dogs. Why am I talking about nuclear energy today? Why has I decided not to talk about nuclear weapons uh, here, but we're actually talk to you about nuclear energy? The first reason, which may be the most important reason, is that I think we're beginning to see unfold in front of our eyes a race to acquiring new nuclear power plants. It's a race in the sense of the pace that is quickening, in terms of the scope that is global, and in terms of the dynamics where we may be seeing one country going in that direction, inspiring others to do very much, very much the same. This uh, uh, chart that is in front of you shows you just that there are sort of the countries that are already operating nuclear power <clears throat> uh, in strong blue, and then the one in sort of shaded blue is the ones that are considering 
adding it. And what is interesting is that we're seeing many, many, many new players around the block, some of them with actual concrete plans in the short term. The second uh, <clears throat> reason uh, that, uh, we, that I think it's worth uh, talking about is because some of this race uh, that, that I've began to describe to you hasn't actually started yet. People are only warming up. And so there is a much greater potential to try and influence it, lest it develop in the wrong direction. So uh, the hype is there, but also the visible signs that it may actually become a reality in a couple of years. We still have an opportunity to influence it. So you have here the list of countries and the list of, of uh, the number of reactors that are currently in use and the number of reactors that, that might be there, which will be at least uh, half of the number that is currently operating within the next 20 to 30 years. And that's a very conservative estimate. There are some estimates that are talking about the significant expansion of nuclear power beyond this as well. Just a second. I blew it. Wait. Sorry. <clears throat> the United States is not the role model. The role model in nuclear power has been and remains to very much sort of Europe and to have in specific, sort of concrete, specific, uh, uh, specifically France, which derives almost 80% of its nuclear power and also has a closed fuel cycle, namely that it not only produces the fuel, but at the end of the day actually also reprocesses it, and some of this reprocessed fuel is then reinserted into the nuclear fuel cycle. But what I think the earlier two slides have begun to describe to you is that this dynamics is beginning to shift where much of the action is actually going in the direction of India and China and several other countries. So the Europe may be the model, but the action will take most places elsewhere. Look at the statistics here, and you would get a feel of where the action currently is. There'll be much more of this as time wears on. Finally, uh, by way of introduction, why I think it's important to talk about nuclear power is that the established players will only have limited impact on what we're likely to see. And by established players, I mean not only countries of where nuclear power is going to be built, but also who is going to supply the nuclear reactors. The Chinese and the South Koreans, to mention just two, have very ambitious programs to be exporters of nuclear power. The, the Japanese that have basically built nuclear power in, their, in, their, um, in Japan are actually have uh, uh, similar ambitions, and there are three Japanese companies in that, in that, um, in that list, where those being Toshiba, uh, Hitachi, and Mitsubishi, and we can th then talk about the established players as well, all of which uh, are trying to get into the act. What drives this new discovery, this new zeal in nuclear power, particularly after almost 25 years in which nuclear power has fallen out of favor? One is a sense that the global energy demand, notwithstanding what we're seeing in the last couple of months as a result of the economic recession, requires additional energy sources, and those additional energy sources um, uh, in general, and it's sort of electricity uh, uh, sources in particular, 
do create particular appeal for nuclear power, and as I will explain in a minute. The second is the sense that the other sources available may not do, that they are either in dangerous parts of the world, that they're put uh, in politically and from a security perspective, that those additional energy sources <clears throat> are extremely difficult to obtain, that they meet politically in problematic areas in terms of someone trying to actually manipulate the supply, <clears throat> and therefore that we may face a situation which is really characterized by unprecedented phenomena, and I'm <laughs> going to give you just these two slides to illustrate what we may be seeing. Nuclear power that has had a mixed record at best with terms of uh, um, uh, cost and competitiveness has also become, for a variety of reasons, somewhat more competitive. And if we actually factor in a topic that I'll get to uh, a bit later, if we actually factor in the, um, some incentives associated with uh, uh, avoiding carbon emission would actually be remarkably competitive. Some of the countries that are vying for nuclear power actually have oil in abundance. They are looking at nuclear power to provide them with a, substitu a, a, a substitution of their oil for the oil consumption so they can actually allow their oil and gas to be exported in significant quantities. Russia is just one case in point. The UAE considerable interest in nuclear power is another case in point. I think that if you talk to Europe today, and having been there in the last couple of weeks, the, the aftermath of the second crisis between Russia and, George, and, and Ukraine uh, and the gas trouble that followed suggests to the Europeans that they can no longer rely predominantly on Russian gas. This is not equally shared but acutely shared in many places in Eastern Europe, but not exclusively in Eastern Europe. And while the Germans are lagging behind, the Swedish decision last week to actually re-embark on a very ambitious nuclear energy program after having phased out nuclear power for, and phasing out new building nuclear power for more than two decades, is just the lightest in a series of decisions in Europe to go ambitiously again in nuclear power preceding Sweden where the United Kingdom, Italy, uh, and of course several other countries uh, in Eastern Europe, the most interesting of which is Poland in collaboration with the Baltic Republics. So energy security is a big issue and the fact that nuclear power could provide an indigenous base for generating a significant electricity is a serious uh, consideration. Another pat nuclear particular issue that I don't think that many people are paying attention to has to do with the age of the existing nuclear infrastructure. Look at the following chart. So at the beginning of this year, the bulk of the nuclear reactors operating worldwide, and as I've noted earlier, there are 430 or so reactors operating, are over 30 years old. Those reactors were not designed to, be, to work for more than, originally for more than 40 years. The, some examination that has been done has revealed that those reactors could be robust enough in most cases, not in all cases, to actually have their life extended somewhat longer, perhaps as long as 60 years. But the sense is that even the best of these reactors are sort of um, <clears throat> already sufficiently old that we need to think about uh, phasing them out and what comes after that. 
The United Kingdom, for example, that has had an older generation of nuclear reactor will have to phase all of its existing nuclear power plants shortly after 2020, the last of them, and so on, and therefore is trying to think about uh, going back and building many nuclear power plants to replace the existing facilities. The environmental benefits have been a decisive factor in influencing decisions of several countries. I've already mentioned Sweden, particularly because Sweden is so environmentally conscious. But in, in sort of, that has also been in sort of true of other Nordic countries. It has also been true of several other countries in, in sort of across Europe, Italy being a case in point that have decided originally to phase nuclear power and are reconsidering it because it would uh, be the absolutely indispensable if they want to meet their carbon emission obligations. There is a vibrant debate now going on in Europe whether there is any other way of doing so without nuclear power, not with nuclear power being making all of the difference, but at least some of the difference. Nobody has yet come out with the sort of answers for how this could be done. There is clearly a sense in some circles that it's good enough. If it's good enough for the big guys, then it should be good enough for others as well. And that's where the copycat syndrome is coming to. I think that if having had an opportunity to listen to many people who are talking about nuclear power in other areas, neither United States and North America nor Europe, I was also impressed that there is considerable ignorance about what nuclear power actually entails. That the picture is not entirely rosy, that there are limitations, that there are complications, that there are stringent requirements, and it has a very uh, uneven history, and that one should be painfully aware of that history is in order not to repeat past mistakes. That unfortunately, that information unfortunately, is not widely understood in certain circles vying for nuclear power. There is a certain element of prestige still associated with nuclear power, notwithstanding the fact that nuclear technology and nuclear power technology has been there for two generations. There is a sense that maybe there is going to be a new regime in place that would further deny nuclear technology so one better preempt and build some of those facilities and be part of the club or else have the, club, the doors of the club close on them, denying them the possibility to get nuclear technology in general or certain components of the nuclear technology. And of course, and lamentably, there is a very strong sense that some of those vying for nuclear power may not actually be going for nuclear power, but may actually be interested in nuclear weapons, or at least having an option to get to nuclear weapons should they elect to do so. What is enhancing the nuclear appeal? Before we get to the demerits of nuclear power, one is that whereas nuclear power in the 70s and 80s was not particularly reliable, its reliability factors being at best sort of around 70%. We're now talking about reliability of nuclear reactors being in the 90% range. Nuclear power has therefore, after maturing Western nuclear technology, I should emphasize, to a lesser extent also Russian, but much more so Western nuclear technology, has proven itself to be remarkably reliable, certainly compared to what it has been in the past, and is indeed providing the backbone of electricity generation in many places. So there is a much improved reactor operation record and the, the ability of the new, to rely on nuclear power to be, be a base loader, namely that even in periods where the temperatures may be high, cold or, or, or hot, 
even when it's, it's kind of windy or dark, unlike other sources of energy, whether it's wind or sun and so on, energy, nuclear energy can, can, provide, uh, uh, can provide electricity. Another complication that haunted nuclear power when it, was began, when it became widespread, particularly in the United States, was the fact that it was scattered all over the place. The operators were many uh, and, and um, had operated relatively few facilities, ran into a lot of problems as a result. The consolidation of the industry at the moment in the United States, there are only seven major utilities operating nuclear power, has definitely helped create a, a, a more nuclear-friendly environment in terms of a, a core robust uh, experienced personnel to operate those utilities and to make sure that the, the nuclear power operates successfully. I should add, and here is one of the issues that I'll come back to, that when you have now um, many operators that have uh, decades of experience behind them in operating these reactors, it's a great plus because these guys basically know what they're doing. One of the challenges in front of us is that this, this generation goes away. And if we don't decide what nuclear power fate will be, then there will be no new, new generation of operators to mend these facilities with all the complications that follow. One of the biggest dilemmas surrounding nuclear power in the past had to do with the fact that one could not predict with any reliability when one actually complete the construction of a nuclear facility. One would start with the license application and then it's a separate process later for an operating license, and, and then start the, 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 um, the, the um, uh, sort of another layer of complications in terms of actually uh, um, uh, operating the reactor. And now the government, the US government, but similarly uh, other governments have decided to try and provide a more predictable, simplified, and harmonized regulatory process that had, would, would make it easier and hopefully uh, um, uh, more efficient to predict with some confidence when one would actually be able to start the process of construction, when one would be able to complete it without having that uncertainty that at the end of the day raised the cost of the building by several billions and made completion of some of those reactors absolutely impossible at the end of the day. Some of the reactors we have, in, sort of, we have uh, sort of, uh, on hand or are coming on hand are better and bigger in the sense that they can actually become cost, more cost-effective. Governments across the world in different forms are providing some subsidies, at least for the first new batch of nuclear reactors. I've already mentioned some of the environmental benefits of nuclear power. There is a greater effort than before to do standardization of the nuclear facilities and the nuclear reactors, which will again drive down the cost and make the cost more predictable save a lot of relicensing uh, uh, requirements, particularly if one succeeds, as, as the effort is currently underway, that licensing uh, that is done in one country would actually be recognized by another, something that has not been in the place in the past, even if it's not completely uh, sufficient that it would at least save some of the effort. Unlike other energy sources, there is a sense that between the uranium stocks that are currently in existence and the spent fuel that could be reprocessed, one could actually generate more. <clears throat> and then one looks at the economic factors and so on. I won't get into any specifics here. One sees that nuclear power does have its advantages in the non-gas uh, gas house uh, um, 
uh, emission uh, generation. But the story is a hell of a lot more complicated than that. And for all its appeal, nuclear power does have limitations, does have stringent requirements, does raise some risks. We should be painfully aware of many of those risks. The industrial bottlenecks are severe. This is an industry that had built very few reactors over the last couple of decades, uh, for a year on average over the last two decades. The nuclear food chain, the suppliers that are supposed to provide the reactors are, are few and far apart. The people in the industry that are supposed to build those reactors are largely inexperienced. These are not people who have built uh, many, many reactors. And if one wants to understand how grave of a problem this could be, when the French now built, started building the first of its kind new reactor in Finland, what it turns out is that after a couple of years of construction, they're already more than two years behind schedule, more than two billion euros over budget, and that is from the biggest and perhaps most significant nuclear vendor currently in place. So one can actually see what inexperience actually amounts to. It is extremely difficult as a result to calculate with any certainty what, will, what the construction costs are going to be. The utilities that are eager to have uh, nuclear power uh, and already have some of the older reactors and would like to look at one, it's sort of new ones. And for the moment, there are, in the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, has, I think, 37 license applications for new reactors in the country. None of these utilities is already in a position to commit to actually transform the license application that is applied for into actual full-fledged uh, uh, <coughs> construction. In part, this has been a problem before the recent economic meltdown. It has, of course, been made much more severe with Wall Street becoming so risk-averse that financing packages for new nuclear power are much more difficult to come by, particularly in light of the experience of this new build of the nature that I've already referred to in, in, in Finland. There is some uncertainty as whether the governments would continue to provide the level of support necessary to jumpstart the industry. Um, for those of you who've been following the press over the last 24 hours, then there was a debate in Congress whether part of the stimulus package should include increase in the scope of the, of the um, loan guarantees that are being offered to nuclear power. For the moment, it's $18.5 billion, uh, uh, whether it should be increased to 50 and the, no, the motion for the moment at least has been shelved. One can go into the reasons why, but this just indicates to you that the level of support for the moment is uncertain, and under some scenarios at least, the 18.5 billion would only su suffice for two and a half reactors. Similarly, Congress here and similar problems elsewhere haven't actually set uh, a specific figures in terms of what would be the carbon emission subsidies or penalties, however one wish to define it, that would be offered, that one would have to calculate as part of the, um, the economic viability of nuclear power. Waste disposal, which has always been a problem, hasn't, been, uh, hasn't gone away. It's still a problem. There are ways of alleviating it. Some of the technological solutions that one would like to see are still a decade or two away. This problem is still with us. Communities that have had nuclear power, by and large, are willing to go for it. Again, communities that haven't 
are not particularly eager, and that also holds true for expanding the electrical grid. It doesn't pertain exclusively to nuclear power, but it certainly pertains also to nuclear power. There is a significant potential, a significant risk, that if one nuclear reactor turns wrong elsewhere around the world, there will be a, a, a setback in terms of the, at least of the public sentiment, regardless of what the specific parameters of that, of that reactor would be. And therefore, that if, if somebody uh, um, um, handles nuclear power irresponsibly or, or uh, uses it for the wrong purposes, then this would come back to haunt us, and people have to deal with this, nuclear, with this risk factor as well. And finally, there is a vicious nuclear politics that is unfolding with the non-aligned countries demanding to have nuclear power for the right reasons and for the wrong reasons alike, and are looking at all kinds of efforts to try and educate them what actually operating nuclear reactors is all about if you want to do it safely, securely, uh, without it turning into nuclear weapons or into a, an environmental disaster and so on, are pushing back on efforts to try and, and sort of and treat, treat them as second-class citizens to sort of, they, they consider it as a condescending, unacceptable approach. Let me say a few words as I near conclusion with respect to the United States. The United States used to be at the nuclear forefront on weapons, on naval propulsion, and on power. However, I want to show you one, one quick slide that will give you a sense. Look at the number of reactors worldwide. I could have sort of used figures in other domains as well, but will give you the magnitude of the US advantage in that domain. The US has fallen behind in nuclear science, in nuclear engineering, in nuclear industry. Much of the new construction that is actually talked about in the United States in the area of nuclear power we'd have to rely predominantly on components that are imported from abroad. The nuclear food chain that used to exist here has almost entirely gone away, and without getting into the various acronyms and sort of, and sort of, of what has caused that, since uh, uh, Three Mile Islands in particular, of course Chernobyl and, and so on, uh, and the many, many reactors that it was construction had started, but then as a result of delays was never completed, all of that had stunk nuclear power. The US is still haunted by this nuclear legacy. It remains ambivalent about encouraging a comeback for reasons having to do with waste, with safety, with security. And some people tell me at the end of the day, money is the thing that counts most, also as a result of finance. While I've already mentioned to you that there are 37 reactors uh, that, who's for whom uh, license applications have been filed, it is unclear that any of them will actually be realized in the next couple of years. I think it's quite likely that some, but it's unclear how many, and it's how clear and quickly these will become online. Nuclear energy policy has been something the, the, pre the, uh, the previous administration has tried to revisit, not particularly competently, not particularly coherently, not particularly um, in, a, in, a, um, in an engaging fashion, both with the public and with all arms in Congress, the legacy of that policy hasn't been particularly successful. The new administration is only beginning to revisit the issue. One cannot expect a rapid breakthrough, and so on. And needless to say that overall energy policy choices will actually determine the outcome. So what are we left with? We're left with the need to reconcile some acute, dile the dile the acute dilemmas. How can one develop nuclear power without it becoming a source of more proliferation? 
whether the effort to uh, disarm the existing nuclear arsenals that has already been referred to would be an effort that would help nuclear power or actually limit it? How does one provide safety and security for nuclear power, not just in the Western world, but also in the developing world, on standards no lesser and, in fact, more rig sort of more rigorous than, than currently uh, exist even in Europe, as because their security situation may warrant a much tighter security and safety regime, having less experienced operators, more terrorism, and so on. How do we actually solve the waste, the nuclear waste program, the problem, or at least find a temporary arrangement to store those spent fuel rods in an environmentally acceptable manner, in an economically acceptable manner? And the US, for example, policy on this issue is the least intelligent one can actually think of, where the US hasn't been able to deliver on its plans to open <clears throat> a depot where it could actually put those, and it's paying billions and billions of dollars a year just for interim storage to sort of to keep those fuel rods from going places which, you, uh, which would be uh, bad to have them. How does one disseminate nuclear culture and knowledge without doing so in a condescending, way, in condescending manner? How does one finance new building? How does one harmonize the regulatory liability standards across the world? Even Japan does not have a reasonable liability standards. Now that India wants to build nuclear power, in massive uh, uh, proportions. The issue of liability is a big issue, and yet getting to the, the Indian parliament and explaining to him, to, to, the, uh, to the parliamentarians, why you have to put in place a robust reliability regime for nuclear power operators to come in, in the, with Bhopal in the background, is extremely difficult politically in India to do. How, uh, in particular, a particular issue on nuclear power, the, the core of the industry has gone towards building bigger and bigger reactors. Those are more cost effective. And yet one of the consequences of introducing these reactors is that they require a much more robust grid. As a result, these are less and less compatible with the need of developing countries who are actually vying for nuclear power. What that means in practice, that we may find those, nuclear, those countries, those new nuclear aspirants, going for, the, for a, a sort of an older generation, of nuclear facilities that are smaller, that are less safe, that are less secure, and so on. They're also less economic, for the, so for the wrong reason. So we have a problem here that the development of the nuclear reactors is actually being tailored to the Western world, whereas much of the development is actually fitting, uh, will actually occur, um, will occur elsewhere. And I've already mentioned the global politics. Time is of the essence. One is the environmental impact that we're all aware, acutely aware of. I'll just add two more slides <laughs> for the list of the ones that I've already mentioned. Excuse me, yeah. Uh, just a second. The second is we have to bear in mind that nuclear power has a long lead time to actually have a meaningful impact. Let me just give you the, the sense of this. For nuclear power really to become a serious player, it's a matter of several decades. I mean, beyond what is currently available or even just to, to, re, to replace reactors that are coming of age. And the reason for this is because it takes three to four years to handle the license application and another seven to 10 years to build a reactor so you have a sense 
of what this, this looks like for nuclear power ambitions actually to be realized as part of the energy mix that I've already presented to you. Just excuse me for a second. The nuclear industry that has been growing dramatically in anticipation of rapid growth may not be able to sustain the people they have absorbed. And the uh, schools of engineering and others that have began to reopen after being closed for several, de several decades may not be able to sustain their programs if the, the future of nuclear power is not sustained. Uh, plain nuclear phase-out of the nature that I've already mentioned for the United Kingdom and which I've referred to in the context of the age of the reactors are also becoming an issue. The suppliers that are very hungry after several decades of being deprived of new contracts run a risk of, of, of uh, an unbridled competition which could then also mean cutting corners in many areas that we're not particularly comfortable with. And clearly, the nuclear disarmament process, as I've already mentioned, could open new opportunities, for example, by making some more fuel available, but also runs the risk, <clears throat> runs other risks in terms of sort of other people who have done things in the context of nuclear establishments becoming available <clears throat> Uh, becoming available to do it elsewhere uh, and therefore cloud the nuclear vision. So what I take away from the years that Sid had invested in me while working not on nuclear power but on nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear arms control and nuclear proliferation is that one needs to pursue an integrated policy that is national and international scope that marries science, technology, economics, security and politics. We're not there. We're not there on national basis. We're not there internationally. The current situation is unsustainable. And unless we find some way of forging a consensus around where we need to go, that first is a national because the United States is such an important leader, and then tries to broaden it and bring other key players along, uh, that would make things very challenging, both environmentally as well as in terms of security. Thank you very much. Have I gone too long? Have I gone too long? Thank you very much, uh, Ellie, for a very informative and, and interesting talk. And uh, thank you for being willing to take questions. Uh, what I would like to do is, um, if you have questions, and we encourage you to ask, uh, we have plenty of time, uh, please raise your hand. Uh, I will recognize you. We'll get one of the two roving microphones to you. Uh, when you get the microphone, uh, then please uh, stand up uh, and give us your name and affiliation and ask your question, please. And I saw one hand back there already, and we'll start with you. Uh, yes, I'm Dave Chapman. I live around here. Um, my question has to do with the motivations, both for the subsidies and for the allegedly civilian nuclear power programs in general. Uh, we all know that most countries historically built nuclear power programs in order to maintain a nuclear weapons option. I think the Japanese nuclear weapons program is the classic example of this. My question is, given the fact that most of these countries appear to be motivated by the desire to keep 
the option of building nuclear weapons in the future, does that mean that it's unreasonable to expect them to apply normal economic criteria to the decision to build nuclear power plants? I think uh, my answer to you would be to start revisiting some of the premises uh, uh, that you were, were sort of, and, and, then, and then take it from there. I think I, I haven't gone into a very technical discussion uh, of what in the nuclear power component is actually dual use and what is not. Nuclear power reactors as such, particularly if you're talking about light water, light water reactors, which are the mainstay of the nuclear power, are not ideally suited for nuclear weapons. What is ideally suited are fuel cycle facilities. Whether it's the enrichment side or the reprocessing side, those are the indispensable elements. Some types of research reactors and heavy water uh, uh, power reactors. They're much better for purposes of getting to the weapons. One. Two, if you actually look at the Japanese, it's not, the Japan has developed nuclear power aggressively because of its enormous dependence on oil. It's true that Japan in parallel did have the desire to retain a nuclear weapons option, but that was not necessarily based on the, sort of on, on the building. So you can talk about the fuel cycle facilities, but I'm talking about the number of reactors and so on. Japan had further stayed the course after the hope that this could become a growth industry, not just Japan, but in terms of exporting their nuclear. And that's why it has three major players of significant proportions, the Hitachi, Toshiba, and Mitsubishi. So I think the issue, therefore, is the following. We needn't be overly concerned about proliferation so long as what will actually happen is that only reactors will be built. And we found some way in which the fuel goes in and comes out in a relatively secure fashion, comes from the outside, goes to a certain whatever repository and so on. Whether that arrangement would be acceptable to the new players is not clear. And whether that arrangement would be acceptable for someone who would be on the receiving end of actually having to take the fuel back is not clear either. We have a few examples in mind where this may work. For example, the United Arab Emirates is currently launching a very aggressive nuclear power program. The, the uh, uh, stated uh, objective is to import the fuel, send it back, have it reprocessed, and subsequently, only uh, vitrified waste, and Sig, I can explain to you what that amounts to, would actually come back to the UAE. They won't be able to make weapons out of this. Whether this kind of arrangement, that, for example, was offered to Iran. And in fact, the Iranian demands for nuclear fuel are addressed by the Russians. So the logic under, sort of, under, sort of underlying the Iranian, sort of, the Iranian nuclear aspirations is not nuclear power, because if it was, there is entirely taken care of by what Russia offers to give them and to take back at the end. So we have to look at this with a finer, with a finer uh, um, resolution. The things are not, do not cut across. I think that in general, my sense is that most of those who are going for vying for nuclear power now are not interested in nuclear weapons. There are a handful of exceptions. Those are very worrisome exceptions, but there are just a handful of those and so on. And the, the challenge in front of us, people who are looking at it from a policy perspective, from a technical perspective, from an economic perspective, and so on, is to create some kind of a framework that makes nuclear power easier to use for one and much more difficult for the, to do for the other. That's not a straightforward issue, but I think some of the people who argue for nuclear disarmament 
actually believe that it would create a much better climate under which you can help do so. And you have some of the sponsors of that idea here in front of us. Yes, uh, over here, third row. Mike Livright, I'm, I'm just a person. Um, <laughs> if I were Iran, I would look at Russia and see what they did to gas. I would look at the United States. I would look at people who might supply my nuclear fuel and say, I don't trust that 10 years down the road, they're not going to get mad at me, and I lose power. How do you deal with that if you are a paranoid country, or do you just eliminate paranoid countries? For an Israeli to play the role of an Iranian is great fun. <laughs> Let me, uh, uh, ironically, I actually had the, the virtue of doing so when I was working for the government. So. Um, let me try and address your question, which I think is very serious. So joking aside. One way in which one would do it, not the one I would necessarily recommend, the Iranians and the Russians have been talking about, is, is that much of this fuel comes ahead of time. So you're basically no longer dependent on whether the Russians will actually deliver the fuel or will not deliver the fuel. You will have a storage of that fuel on your territory subject to uh, some space safeguards of the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, visits by the Russians, whatever the case may be, but that there'll be actually, it will be there. That's one option. The Russians have partially accommodated that, but have been, they behaved more responsibly than that, so they haven't provided the Iranians with large supplies. In fact, they have used this as a leverage, so that if the Iranians misbehave, the Russians could say, we're stopping the fuel supply. So it cuts both ways. Second, uh, there are a lots of ideas now on the table on how to reassure countries that are using the nuclear power uh, um, for the right purposes that uh, sort of they would be receiving the nuclear fuel in a, in a reliable fashion. Here are some of the ideas that are on the table. One is to create some kind of a fuel bank under the control of the International Atomic Energy Agency. There have been monetary contributions to create that fuel bank and to make sure that the fuel bank is not regulated by political considerations. A second one, uh, which is, and there have been the US, uh, the NTI has been supporting it, several others, there have been some monetary contributions of, of several Arab countries as well as, as uh, Norway and others. A second approach has been to um, offer uh, some bonds that would offset whatever economic disadvantage is created as a result the British are behind this, sort of in trying to create some financial instruments that would basically offset the risks associated with finding that fuel, fuel elsewhere. Um, there's several other, uh, um, uh, there's several, several, several other options there. To give you one example, which is says, if what the Iranians would would be able to keep, not necessarily not produce the centrifuge, but to, whatever they are able to keep, would be kept not as a low enriched uranium, but actually as fuel rods in some capacity, even if they get it from other suppliers. So there are several options to do so. None of them is perfect. Um, but if economic viability is what you're concerned about, I think that those by and large are, are considerations that should outweigh 
in favor of one or more of the options that I've laid out. To develop your own facilities for producing nuclear fuel. And then also to have to acquire the technology designed to make fuel for the specific reactors that you're operating. And then to develop the capability to, read, sort of, to either store that fuel or reprocess it and so on. In all of these areas, the name of the game is economies of scale. A handful of countries possess the technology. In some of those cases, it's not just one country. For example, the most successful enrichment operation is by Urenco. It's a three country and three, three big countries uh, uh, in terms of nuclear technology operation. So the Iranian offered is hopeless if they actually want to make it economically viable. Next question. Yes, there's a question over here on this side. Fred Zeiss, I'm also independent. Uh, could you address the possibility of using a thorium cycle? I've heard that India is looking into that or has actually implemented that in uh, order to successfully do nuclear power without signing on to the non-proliferation treaty. Sitting by my side, or standing by my side, is someone who has actually visited India recently and looked at their technical ambitions. So, I would defer to SIG, who will tell, actually be able to tell you a great deal about the technology involved. I would just say that in my, 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 to the best of my understanding, this is at least two decades away, if not more, and the fact that the Indians are so eager to get advanced reactors now from France and the United States is a testimony to that. The resistance of the Indian nuclear lobby to doing so, which partly slowed down the India-US nuclear deal, uh, only suggested that the, um, the, uh, some of the push for the thorium was based not just on the availability of thorium within India, but also on the desire of the research and development establishment to stay in the business. But let's see the, add the word about the, the, new, the thorium technology. The, uh, the Indians are indeed very much interested in thorium, and they've had a plan laid out for the last 50 years that they would go in three stages, pressurized heavy water reactors, plutonium breeder reactors, and then the thorium reactors as the third and final stage. The attraction for them being that they have much thorium and not much, uh, ura uh, not much uranium. There are other countries that are also very interested, namely South Korea right now, and also the Russians are interested in, in the thorium cycle. Uh, but the Indians have done the most. They have run a small thorium reactor uh, for over two decades, but it's really just a, a research reactor. It's a very interesting concept. It avoids the word plutonium, uh, because you start with thorium, and, but you make uranium-233, and it turns out you can make just as good a bomb out of uranium-233 as you can make out of plutonium. Uh, the proponents will tell you, well, there's something called uranium-232 that grows in, and that's rather nasty, uh, and therefore it's more proliferation resistant. That really hasn't been demonstrated as yet. It's an interesting concept. It has a lot of potential of having much thorium out there, uh, but it really needs a long way to go before it can be proven uh, that it's economical uh, and uh, that one can actually make it more proliferation resistant. Uh, there was another question right here on that side, yeah? My name is Ron Horn. I'm from GE Hitachi, a vendor. 
But my question really is, how can the United States play a leadership role if it doesn't solve the waste problems and have a solution? First of all, I think that the United States need to address this, the sort of the waste problem. And I think that that is one of the elements that is necessary for the U.S. to play leader. Let me put it this way. Suppose the United States was to abandon nuclear power altogether. Would the U.S. still be left with the legacy of quite a, few, quite a few decades of operating many nuclear power plants and the result of that have to deal with the nuclear spent fuel? So what happens is that it's sort of the nuclear spent fuel challenge is in front of the United States regardless of whether there is more nuclear power or not. That's my opening position. So for me, this is not a question of leadership. It's a question of viability for the long term of, from an environmental standpoint of whatever waste you have produced over several decades. Can the United States afford to decommission whatever plants it currently has rather than let them run the, to the course of the next two decades and, sort of, and so on from either an environmental point of view or from an energy requirement point of view? I think the answer is no. So if you already have to deal with a waste issue, and the need to deal with a waste issue is acute because all of the proposals that have been put in place, which were basically, based, sort of, were basically around the Yucca Mountain and so on, we all understand that the Yucca Mountain thing ain't going to work for two reasons. One is politics, and the second one that even if you were to take all those spent fuel that is already out there, put it in Yucca Mountain, Yucca Mountain will be full. And so what happens, it won't suffice. You need to reprocess or find some other way of handling it, or else you need a sort of this, this, this won't do. So what I'm saying is the United States need to do it regardless of whether it wants leadership. The second thing is I feel that there is no substitute to U.S. leadership because suppose the United States decided for one reason or another, or better yet, was unable to decide what to do about nuclear power. Would that mean that others that have basically decided to embark on ambitious nuclear power programs stay out of it? Maybe it will have an, whet their appetite to do more of this and show the United States that they're ahead of it. We're already seeing the rest of the world going in that direction. India and China are going in that direction. Korea is building, is committed to building um, six, already has plus, 20 plus reactors, committed to building another six over the next decade. I can go on and on with the list. I will also mention Sweden, United Kingdom, and so others. So if the United States wants to be in a position where it has the technology, it has the industrial base, it has the political clout, uh, and so on, to shape the direction it needs to sort of, um, I think that sort of a part of it will depend on whether the United States had phased out nuclear power or not. Some would say, and I defer to them on this one, that it would also mean whether the United States is willing to go further in their area of nuclear arms control and disarmament. So, Ellie, if I, if I may, let me just follow up on that. So if you say the United States uh, should lead for all the reasons that you indicated, uh, do you think it's capable of leading, you know, both from a standpoint of having the political will, but also the technological horsepower? I've, given that the United States had been the forefront of nuclear weapons, given that the United States had been and remains at the, and remains at the forefront of nuclear weapons, given that in terms of the, the, the technical and technological capabilities associated with this, the personnel associated with this, given that the United States has been the forefront of new naval propulsion and remains so. Most of the people, by the way, that are going into the industry are people who are actually sort of growing out of the Navy to a lesser extent out of the labs, but basically out of the Navy. 
So it clearly means that the US has that in there. What had died away was the, the logic driving it into the direction of nuclear power as such. Now, I firmly believe that um, as long as we remember what nuclear power is good for and what is not, nuclear power has a role to play. I believe that, that uh, therefore, uh, between dealing with the past legacy uh, and, uh, um, and dealing with the, the future energy challenges and environmental challenges, the U.S. needs to go back into uh, um, nuclear power, not everywhere, perhaps not with the, sort of the, the masses that are being anticipated. I think that it would be much easier to reintroduce nuclear power in places which already had reactors for multiple reasons that I think we all understand. The communities live with this comfortably and so on. That would make it more economical, more uh, sort of more predictable in terms of the ability to complete the projects, uh, less time consuming uh, and so on. And I think in the course would actually re-empower the United States to play that leadership role in trying to deal with the waste issue, with the proliferation issue, with the security and so on. Let me mention that there are a few areas where the United States had tried to do some things. To give you an example, after September 11th, the United States had taken the lead to put nuclear security higher on the agenda than it has been. Not nuclear safety that has been all there all along, but nuclear security. And has been able, with some, F, with some success, to put it on the agenda of other countries that have previously been rather lax in terms of how they treat issues of nuclear, uh, nuclear security. So this is not an area the US focused on with tremendous effort, but even the limited effort was enough to register with others. To the extent that this becomes a part of an integrated package, I think would make, uh, would make a lot of sense. Dr. Drow, if we can get the microphone. Ellie, can you give us any insight into what the Israeli government is thinking about for nuclear power in the future, both in the country and in the region? The, with great ease. We don't have a government, a functioning government at the moment. <laughs> so I don't know how one will have one anytime soon, given the coalition politics. So any prediction is equally uh, um, likely to be born, born true. I, let me backtrack for a second. If you had asked me the question a month ago, I would have said that the Israeli government was and probably will remain very interested in nuclear power given our energy dependence, which is extremely acute, and the ability of two or three reactors really fundamentally transform the picture. And that the issues of how far you can go in realizing those hopes or expectations were solely dependent on whether Israel can actually buy those reactors rather than have to develop and, and deploy them domestically, which for the moment is a challenge given that we're not part of the NPT and the waiver that was put in place for India was not put in place for Israel. Uh, I said three weeks ago. The reason I'm talking about the situation three weeks later is being very different, potentially for the short term, is in the last three weeks there have been dramatic new gas findings off, the, off Haifa. And those would provide Israel with energy for the next 15 to 20 years at least, even if the sole finding that has proven in the last couple of weeks to be commercially viable, uh, uh, is, 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 is all, that's all we're actually talking about. I don't have to tell you that politicians that are given more time 
to basically make up their minds, use it. So I don't expect any rapid decision on nuclear power in Israel anytime soon, although the interest is interest that comes from the utilities. The sense is that the geography of the nation and so on is one that is particularly useful for the degree that's big enough to accommodate nuclear power. I can go into various other considerations, but on the whole, there is a com the compelling logic that was there in the 70s and is all the more forceful at present. The fact that we have more time to think about this may actually be sufficient to work out the politics associated with this. I should add that uh, with respect to the, one of the questions were raised earlier, Israel wanted to get nuclear power in kind of like a, sort of an exemplary uh, uh, client, namely, we don't want to enrich and we don't want to reprocess. We're looking for someone who will provide us with the fuel and take it back and so on. As far as we're concerned, let someone operate the reactors for us. That's also good enough. So we understand that what happens is that the entry costs associated with nuclear power, even if you're technically competent, are not insignificant. And therefore, to the extent that you can actually rely on seasoned people to do it for you, both to provide you with the fuel, to give it back, and so on, I think would be particularly a useful approach. So the bottom line is there has been interest. It remains there. Uh, gas supply interruptions with Egypt have even made the situation even more acute. Um, but I don't expect an early it is a decision, even if a government is formed tomorrow. <laughs> yes. Your statements about Yucker were depressing. Uh, I have two questions that are related. First of all, in filling up Yucca, were you talking about the statutory limits on storage or the physical limits on storage? Because the physical. The physical. And did you take reprocessing into account in that? No. Well, that's the issue. The issue is, you're absolutely right, reprocessing is a key issue. Without reprocessing, Yucca is already full with the existing spent fuel. Yes. And the second question is, do you see an alternative site in the United States that would be more politically viable than Yucca? It's, uh, I, as an Israeli, I feel that this is a, a question I'm not all that competent to handle. Uh, do you want to address that? Let me put it this way. Uh, I don't think that I have, that, that to date, heard there is one. Uh, politically acceptable. There may be uh, geologically and otherwise, but I haven't seen other, any other state volunteering to take all the nuclear waste. The remarkable thing was, by the way, is the following. The Russians have actually contemplated rather intensely the possibility of becoming a, nuclear, a spent nuclear uh, waste depot, including for spent U.S nuclear fuel that has been supplied to many countries. It could be advantageous, commercially viable, there is place to accommodate it, and so on. Um, and needless to say that when we're looking not just at reprocessing, but uh, one of the biggest challenges, there are a couple of people here that can comment, Sid and, and Sig and among others, the biggest challenge in terms of the future technological development of nuclear power is actually how do we take the waste of today and make it the fuel of tomorrow and be able to operate those reactors not only in a way that is proliferation resistant, but also in a way that is safe and reliable. There is a big, big effort on the way. There is a collaboration between all the major nuclear powers to try and do so. There is a belief that this is viable, 
but there is also an expectation it will take about between one and two decades before we actually see that this is indeed working. Tom, you had a question here. Uh, Tom Finger from here at Stanford. Could you elaborate a little bit, Ellie, on the scale, cost, age of technology, ease of operability kind of questions that you pointed to with particularly countries that don't have nuclear facilities, don't have a large grid, be more interested in smaller uh, scale facilities in terms of who would manufacture them, how safe they would be relatively, how easy to operate indigenously, who's favored, who's disadvantaged, and what are the timescales? This may be the most sensitive part of the discussion, so I would appreciate if I'm not quoted here in order to be able to address your question, at least partially honestly. Uh, the ones who are vying for that part of the market now, the less developed are the, the Chinese with old reactors and smaller reactors, the Canadians with their heavy water reactors, um, I can say it here, the, the, the nature that the Indians have been able to draw on to produce the plutonium for the bomb and so on. We're talking about reactors that are several hundred megawatts and so on. The older Russian reactors of the nature that is currently deployed in Romania, Bulgaria, uh, and so on, and some of them are actually able. Skoda, for example, is able to produce them uh, and so on. Those are not, leave aside for a second the Canadians, those are not necessarily the kind of reactors you would like to see deployed, neither from a proliferation standpoint nor from uh, um, a safety standpoint. I'm talking about the Canadians on the proliferation, uh, the others from a necessarily safety point of view. But they're the only ones currently out there that would not overload the grid. There is one more idea. Some people consider it brilliant and others consider it reckless, which is the Russians have been trying to offer floating reactors based on their never propulsion technology. Basically saying there is no reason when what use is used in a submarine is small enough, big enough to power a submarine, sort of big, small enough to power a small city, that those couldn't be put on some raft or something, anchored offshore and provide energy for a city. Uh, great idea other than the fact that when you actually look at the safety and security aspects of this, this looks truly horrifying. And we certainly hope that it's kept that as an idea and no more than that. What is available out there is not particularly encouraging if, on the one hand, we're talking about the older generation, or if the Canadian technology, which is very technologically sound, ends up in places where proliferation is an issue. If it ends up in Ontario to be the new, new facilities that Ontario builds, or Saskatchewan, all of which are actually thinking about it, we're perfectly comfortable. But if this is actually ELSA build, build, be, being built in the Middle East, I wouldn't be, feel equally comfortable because those are, those are very difficult to safeguard. In terms of the future, the tragedy we're facing is that most of the, en the energy had not gone into developing small power reactors. There's some people here who can t attest to what has happened in the DOE small reactor research program that was basically terminated. There was a very good program at Oak Ridge. But because the small reactors are not of particular interest to the United States, 
that program hadn't gone very far, and the result is that it's, it's now terminated, although there was some technical promise there. The ones who are offering a very uh, interesting technology in that domain are the South Africans, the several others in the pebble bed reactor, the several countries that are sort of our producers that are actually looking at the possible, uh, possibility of collaborating with them. This might be an interesting idea. It's not there yet. We had a question here, Dave Elliott. In the spirit of, uh, of our CSAC seminar, Dave Elliott has a two-finger question, which means he wants to ride uh, piggyback on the last question. A uh, follow-up. Um, I'm glad you raised the small reactor question because I, I would be interested in what you know about this. There is a very small reactor program called the Hyperion program. Uh, it's, uh, the people who are involved are from the lab and they spun off. It's a commercial venture. This is a reactor that's the size of a hot tub. It's delivered to localities, used very locally. It's buried, it's, never, it's, it's run and decommissioned in place. It's never dug up again. And according to their website, they've already sold something like 10 of them. Are you aware of this program and have any comments on it? If uh, reading about it and looking at the back at, the, sort of at their webpage uh, suggests familiarity, the answer is yes. In every other respect, the answer is no. I would say one thing. When we're talking about the smaller ones, question is, are we only concerned about the need, the ability to deploy those in places that do not have agreed to support them? Or are we also interested in places which would not be either tasked with an enormous burden of operating sophisticated nuclear technology and ones where security and, and, and security considerations are not overriding? What worries me about the Hyperion is not if it's actually deployed in the United States and licensed by the NRC. In which case, I would assume that it's safe for operation in the United States. What worries me if this has actually been used elsewhere and someone actually attaches to that the kind of bombs that we've seen and so on, what kind of results do we have? So do we have to deploy now sort of several battalions of, of soldiers just to protect that specific facility because uh, that otherwise we're facing a huge risk of what happens if this thing blows up, no lesser than say a naval reactor is blown up. So the, my, my answer to you is, the problem we are facing is trying to square the need to provide smaller reactors, but also ones that are easy to operate and safe to deploy, not just in the place in which they currently exist. That challenge was part of the challenge that the DOE research program was on this and was looking at, and which for the moment is not proceeding very far. Yes, we have a question over here. Uh, my name is Halle, and I'm just a person. <laughs> uh, I wonder how safe it's uh, the nuclear reactor that uh, Russia made for Iran, in which level of technology, and also do you think that the uh, Iranian, uh, do, do they have that knowledge to handle that if they start? This is not the kind of reactor that was involved in Chernobyl, so that's the good news. It's not on par with some of the reactors, sort of the state-of-the-art reactors that are now being built, say, wherever, in Korea, in France, in Finland, and so on, on the other. So it's somewhere in the middle. 
On the whole, it should be a robust reactor. It's operated safely in other places, the VVR-1000. And there, if handled competently, there is no reason why it should be, a, as such, an environmental problem. The uh, deal between Russia and Iran calls for the Russians to operate the reactor for the first couple of years. So what happens is that the Russians have assumed the responsibility not to hand over it over to the Iranians right away, but not just to train them and just give them with the reactor, but actually to look after the safe operation of the reactor and so on. So unless the Russians are kicked out prematurely for the wrong reasons, uh, I think there is no reason why this reactor should not be operated by Iranians. There are enough Iranians who are technically competent who can operate such reactor. The problem, however, has to do with less with technical thing, I, th I think, but more with the safety culture. What we have realized over the years, that technical competence is not enough. Some of the problems associated with the Indian nuclear program, and I'm not talking about the military, but I'm talking about the civilian, did not result from lack of technical competence on the, on the Indian side, but rather from a very poor safety culture, particularly when it comes to health, environment, and so on. Terrible legacy. And so the thing that I would worry about is whether in the context of actually exporting the reactor, what was exported was also the safety culture that is necessary to make sure that the nuclear power remains safe over the decades. Because what happens is you give someone a gift or you sell him the reactor, this is something that lives for, say, 40 to 60 years, and then you still have to deal with the waste of it, so you're dealing with hundreds and thousands of years. So what happens is, as someone passed along, all of this culture that should accompany the reactor. That's this question I don't know the answer to. I don't think that it's something beyond the comprehension of the Iranians, but on the other hand, because of secrecy and, and some other things, I'm not sure that it's such a profound thing in terms of the culture. Because even in other places, the culture had been slow to develop. We had a question over here. Yes, Gabby. Hi, my name is Gabriella Aoun. I'm at CSAC. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak a little more about the IAEA fuel bank idea and uh, what the main problems that might stand in the way of that idea are. If I'm understanding correctly, the financial backing um, is there or could be there. So what's going to stand in the way and what is your opinion on the viability of this option? Uh, in one word, I think uh, many of those you're trying to entice through that idea are not impressed. And I think they're not impressed for some of them because they don't want the nuclear, it's not the fuel that they're actually after for purposes of powering their reactors, but for other reasons. In which case, the fact that they, it means that they should they deprive them of the, the arrangements. Second, um, some of them are not yet fully convinced that it actually is airtight enough that they would actually get the fuel when they needed it. It was related to an earlier question that was asked. But I think um, th the politics of this is vicious. And it's vicious in the sense that there is a lot of, there are a lot of um, prestige that is endowed with this. Why is it kind of a two-class system? Those who are entitled to have fuel cycle facilities and those who are not. I think that the viability of this idea would be greatly enhanced if everyone basically went for multilateral facilities, in which case the comfort, degree of comfort for others not to have their own facilities would be, would be much higher because it would not be associated with accepting your relegation to a second-class citizen. 
see, we have time for one more question. There's one over here. I will take two more. Um, hi, uh, my name is Eric Wessoff. I'm just a person, but I'm also a uh, reporter. Um, I, I wrote an article. Well, it's clear that reporters are no, no person. Okay, I mean, we know that. Okay, I'm just a person. Um, you said, so I recently wrote a, a piece on uh, just general nuclear power, and whereas I normally get a few comments, I got 120 or 130 comments. So it's obviously, and I, I write for something called Green Tech Media, so we are ostensibly a renewable energy green power um, uh, website. So number one, one of the things that was brought up was that the carbon footprint, although, it's, although nuclear plant doesn't produce greenhouse gases, the amount of concrete that goes into it is the carbon footprint of initially building that is quite large. I don't know if that's something you can talk about. And the other, the other comment that went down was that you, you said that it takes three to five years for the permitting process and seven to ten years for the, the build. China is able to do both of those processes in two years, according to some voices on, again, anonymous voices. Is, is, that, is that something that sounds right to you? So if, if, you can, if you can answer either or both of those questions, but can China do that, those two processes in two years and two years compared to out of three to five and seven to ten years? And do you know anything about the build footprint of, of the reactor? You're raising a complicated question. I think some of the audience is tired. So let me just try and give you a partial answer and a very quick one at that. A hell of a lot in terms of the time frame depends on whether you're trying to build a reactor where already a reactor exists. And you know that a lot of the things have been looked into, ranging from the grid all the way to the seismic stability of the area. You can shorter the period and so on. Are you building a reactor of a nature that has already been built and licensed? Or are you building a new type? One of the virtues of the standardization is you don't have to go in through those old process in you. And one of the things that, Russia, that the Chinese are trying to do is cut down the time by standardization or in a nature that wasn't possible without central planning here. You can cut down the cost and so on. If they are cutting corner beyond this, I'm not sure in part because for the moment the reactors they mostly have built, or sort of the, at least the next the new generation of them are all either Westinghouse or, or Arriva reactors and so on. So th that's one. Two, I don't know the exact figures with respect to the construction in terms of the, um, the cement, but I will tell you it's true that these are particularly big facilities and the cement is absolutely necessary and particularly specialized cement. But I think the point to remember is the following. We are talking about power generation for 60 years. That's the thing. And therefore, you can't look just at the original sunken cost in terms of, uh, um, uh, sort of, in terms of the, the emissions, but you actually look at sort of as averaging it over a 60-year time frame. We have the last question over here. I'm a Stanford alum. Um, in September of 2007, uh, the Israeli Air Force uh, took out a facility uh, in Syria. Uh, it was rumored to be supplied uh, with some North Korean technology. And I'm wondering if you have a comment on that, and has the Israeli government received any uh, thank you notes to date from uh, any other countries? Um, I will confine my answer to you uh, for brevity's sake, because the, the, the audience is tired, <laughs> to just three quick observations. The first is, if I had to list a number of countries that are notorious for the quality of their nuclear power reactors, 
I wouldn't list North Korea at the top of the list or even in the middle of the list. So if someone actually wanted to build a reactor, a power reactor, in anywhere in the world, I think that the list is that one would turn to North Korea last, if even if that. So that's one uh, uh, with respect to... Um, with respect to... Uh, um, uh, that's one. Two, the uh, North Korean reactors have been used for several purposes, but the primary one, nameless to say, is for production of, of um, uh, nuclear uh, fissile material for weapons purposes. That's the second thing that I would point out. The third thing uh, that the um, North Koreans have indeed been on the market exporting their ware and trying to um, uh, seduce others to go along, basically saying, you know, if you have this thing, you're not getting just sort of, uh, uh, sort of the technology, but you're actually getting yourself a life insurance. I mean, we had it, others, this is the way to go, and so on and so forth. So uh, they have been there. This has been a risk we all have been aware of for a long, long time, and so on. I think the one thing I would say with respect to uh, the reported outcome is that thankfully we don't have to consider this issue as an acute issue for the next year or two. <laughs> before, before we give Ellie a, a, a big hand, uh, let me, I, I do point out sometimes in, in the class that I teach that it might have been uh, one of the greatest um, uh, uh, issues of cooperation in nonproliferation, and that is, you know, the, the Koreans built the reactor, the Israelis eliminated, uh, bombed the reactor, and then the Syrians cleaned up the site themselves to make sure that nobody... And knew. then the audience in Stanford sent a thank you note. <laughs> so before we, we thank uh, Ellie, uh, let me again... Uh, thank, uh, first of all, Bud and Cecily Whelan uh, for making it possible uh, and in endowing the direct lecture. Unfortunately, they were not able to be with us uh, here today. Uh, let me thank uh, again Dr. Sidney Drell uh, for all that he's done uh, for humankind and uh, for giving us a subject uh, for this lecture. And I'd like to thank all of you uh, for coming uh, and listening and asking your question, especially those who are just persons. We love to get the just persons here uh, to stand for to talk about these matters. Uh, and then mostly, uh, let, let's all thank Ellie for doing such a splendid job of standing up here for an hour and a half in this informative lecture. Thank you.